KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Joan Walsh of The Nation talks about Raphael Warnock's victory over Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate runoff, and historian Nelson Lichtenstein will comment on the historic strike at the University of California by teaching assistants, research assistants, tutors, and postdocs. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the victory of Raphael Warnock in the Georgia Senate runoff means at least two things. First of all, every incumbent Senate candidate has now been reelected. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I mean, I think since that refers to both parties, that refers to basically the entrenched partisan stalemate uh, that we see uh, throughout the country. But that said, that doesn't mean that some of these states themselves aren't changing, and Georgia is clearly a prime example of that. The second thing that this victory means is that Democrats, of course, now control the Senate 51 to 49 instead of 50 to 50 with the vote from the vice president breaking the ties. What is on your to-do list for the Senate in the coming lame duck session? Let me just say my number one target for them is to pass the Electoral Count Reform Act. This is the law that would prevent future Donald Trumps from trying to overturn the results of a presidential election when the electoral votes are, are counted by Congress. Yes, well, of course, for the lame duck session, it's still going to be 50 to 50 with uh, Vice President Harris breaking the vote. And yes, the Electoral Count Act there are folks who say we're trying to get the DREAM Act finally passed to give citizenship eventually to people who were brought here as kids, as undocumented immigrants, others who say we want to restore the child tax credit. All of that, you know, I think sort of falls under the category of, of Hail Mary passes that you may as well try before uh, Kevin McCarthy, well, before the Republicans take the House, how long it will take Kevin McCarthy <laughs> to actually assemble 218 votes to make himself speaker is as yet unknown. Although the Electoral Count Act at this point may be just about the uh, 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 only remaining piece of legislation that could possibly pass. I mean, it has to get 10 Republican senators in order to uh, clear the cloture threshold. Uh, I, I think they did pass... I think the House today passed the Senate version of the act uh, legalizing gay marriage and interracial marriage and such. That uh, So that's now going to uh, President Biden's desk. So now that we have finally finished the last of the 2022 election, spread it, we're getting ready for 2024. Joe Biden at a state dinner uh, toasted 2024, which created a wave of anxiety among Democrats, which suggests, of course, he's planning to announce he will run again. What do you think about that? Well, and actually, uh, uh, French President Macron uh, uh, toasted Biden as the uh, once and future president, I, I, I gather. I, I put out a column, my ONTAP column yesterday, to which I in addition to the on tap going out, I emailed out to various uh, friends and associates with the uh, heading, well, somebody had to say this. <laughs> yes. And what I had to say was, much as I really have been pleasantly surprised and appreciate uh, Joe Biden's presidency so far, which all things considered uh, has been pretty damn good, uh, I don't think he should run for re-election. And I, this, this is not really so much a comment on Joe Biden as it is on what you have to conclude when you look at actuarial tables for 80-year-old men in America, which Joe Biden is precisely an 80-year-old American man. And their average life expectancy is just over seven years. And just over seven years if Biden were to be reelected and serve out his term, takes us right about to the time uh, he, he would step down at the inaugural in uh, uh, 2028. But that also means that half of the 80-year-old men in America 
are going to die before then. And, you know, that, that, that should be a bit, of a, a, a bit of a deterrent. I mean, people are worried about how mentally agile uh, Biden will be. Uh, you know, it, it's not a question of how mentally agile he is today. It's during the 2024 campaign. And if he wins in 2025 or 2027 or 2028, what have you. So that's one, spe- yeah, that, that's one subset of my uh, anxiety. The other subset is let's say he dies in 2025, 2026, Vice President Harris obviously becomes president. And I am not at all confident that Vice President Harris, who becomes President Harris, could win the election in 2028. Let me just remind us ourselves, how many votes did Kamala Harris get running in the Democratic primaries uh, when she when she entered? The answer is zero. She spent a year working in Iowa, and then before the Iowa vote, the California poll came out showing that she was going to lose the California primary, which was going to be a month or so after that. Her own home state, she was going to lose. At that point, she pulled out, she threw in the towel, pulled out of the Iowa primary. So she's never had any success at all uh, nationally as a candidate. That's true. And uh, even apart from whatever individual uh, achievement she does or does not uh, make, uh, a black female president from liberal California is probably, A, going to be subjected to a just torrent of abuse from right-wing media and not be the kind of obviously go-to candidate for uh, voters who may be undecided. Now, the actual problem we don't have to sort of go to a hypothetical 2028 presidential election. Let's go to 2024 if, if the Democratic ticket is, is, again, Biden and Harris. Now, the Republicans will make up all kinds of nonsense, you know, Hunter Biden type stuff to throw at Joe Biden. The, the, the only empirically verifiable uh, attack that they're likely to make on Biden it will be at that point. This guy's 82 years old. And he's going to serve until he's 86 years old. And you don't know what kind of shape he's being, he's going to be in. And uh, should he uh, kick the bucket between, you know, at some point in his second term, do you want Kamala Harris as your president? The Republicans are going to say that. Uh, and we don't know, we don't know the effect of that. Now, were she to become president at some point, except for very late in his second term, I don't think that she would get Democratic primary opponents. Who, who, who would oppose the first woman president, who is also second African-American president in the Democratic Party? I, I'm not sure that, that she would get any opposition. If this were to happen, again, hypothetically, in 2028, when she and other Democrats would have already entered the, the primary races to succeed President Biden, then I think those would go forth. But, you know, I mean, I I think it just puts the Democrats in a difficult position. Now, look, the Republicans are quite capable of renominating Donald Trump, uh, who gets crazier by the day. uh, And they're also capable of nominating another MAGA Republican who isn't Trump, but who would still carry a lot of that baggage. So, Yes, Democrats could probably win against that. But, you know, I mean, in terms of what it is that in theory the Democrats can control, it's their own nominees. Uh, Now, every indication is that President Biden wants to run again. And the strongest indication was his reshuffling the deck uh, in the order of uh, which states go first uh, in the 2024 primary elections. And he went to uh, his most favored state, South Carolina. Yeah, South Carolina. Let's just remind our listeners, that's the state that won him the nomination, basically. Absolutely. He more or less bombed in, in the first two states, which were Iowa and New Hampshire. And then uh, in the third state, South Carolina, he rose Lazarus-like, won overwhelmingly. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that and with COVID coming on, he pretty much cleared the Democratic field. essentially directing, in theory requesting, but actually directing the Democratic National Committee to uh, put South Carolina first, uh, that has to be viewed as a signal that he intends to run. So I, I, you know, I just, uh, 
This may be an utterly futile exercise in my uh, writing this, but as I said in my email, somebody had to say this, and God knows I know there are a lot of people uh, inside politics and outside politics who would agree with what I say. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Joe Biden visit a, visited a facility outside Phoenix being built by a company called the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. They've recently committed to investing $40 billion, B as in baby, in Arizona to produce advanced semiconductors. This is just what Joe Biden said was going to happen if we passed the CHIPS Act. He noted that in this investment will bring more than 10,000 construction jobs and 10,000 new jobs in high tech. Biden is really on a roll as far as the jobs go in America. No, he is. He is. And, you know, despite at the moment all of the predictions that we'd be in a recession right now, uh, we ain't. Uh, we're still adding jobs. Unemployment is still well below 4%. Uh, and there's no question that both the CHIPS Act and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is sort of a funding climate change uh, act, among other things, uh, will generate a good number of jobs. And, you know, in a fundamental sense, the big shift in policy here, particularly as regards employment, is this is uh, the United States embracing industrial policy that we, uh, you know, shouldn't be heeding Wall Street to offshore everything that uh, we, all the goods we buy to nations with cheaper labor. That was sort of the governing strategy of most American corporations uh, beginning in the 1980s and greatly accelerating once China, uh, once we established uh, permanent normal trade relations with China in 2000. That strategy has been one of the major factors in devastating the Midwest and turning it into the uh, the Rust Belt instead of the manufacturing belt. So it's it's a real it's a real shift in in thinking. Uh, I distinctly recall in the 1970s just a handful of lefties saying we need industrial policy, such uh, as yourself, such as yourself, such as, myself, such as my uh, my mentor Michael Harrington, such as. A couple economists at Berkeley who wrote the book called Manufacturing Matters, uh, such as economists like Lester Thoreau and uh, and and others. But it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of folks. And finally, the logic of this position, somewhat aided by the fact that despite all of the American investments in China, China has not become a democracy because it got more capitalists, which was, of course, the prediction of uh, the Clinton administration and the Bush administrations before and after. We uh, uh, made trade with China such a fundamental part of our economy. We argued that that was nonsense and uh, sad to say, because I don't wish uh, the Chinese system of government on anyone, including the Chinese, uh, sad to say uh, we were right. It didn't bring democracy with it. It merely uh, helped uh, devastate certain regions of the American economy and probably brought down wages subject to foreign competition all across the American economy. Well, now it's time to talk about class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. The grad student employees strike at the University of California is the biggest strike in the country this year. It's being run by the United Auto Workers at the same time that the UAW is running an election for new national officers. It's the first open election in the history of the union which now has tens of thousands of student members who are all voting right now. Uh, let's talk about the significance of the UAW election and what a victory of the reform slate could mean. You are absolutely right that they're holding elections right now, and this is new for them. And the reason they're holding elections is the same reason the Teamsters uh, went to holding elections 25 years ago. And that is, uh, there was a great deal of corruption in those two unions at different times. Uh, in the case of the UAW, two recent past presidents have served jail time for misappropriation of funds. And so a court uh, handed it over to a federal um, uh, monitor who uh, said, uh, well, let's hold elections instead of choosing leaders in the delegated convention." It's good that we're talking right after the Georgia uh, runoff election, because the UAW is structured in the same way their elections are. So in round one of the election, whose votes were counted last week, 
uh, it turned out that this insurgent slate, who are relatively new, uh, responding to the corruption of the recent past regimes, they won outright two of the three vice presidencies, two of the three UAW regions for regional director where they had candidates. And the third one will go to a runoff election where uh, she is already leading. And in the president's election, there were five candidates. The incumbent president, Ray Curry, got the most votes, but it was only 39% uh, of the vote. And the uh, candidate from the reform slate got 37% of the vote, and they will run off also, I'm not sure if the day's been set yet in either January or February, but as I said, there were five candidates, and the the other three support the the reform candidate. So I think we're looking at an absolute, close to a clean sweep of uh, who's running the United Auto Workers, which uh, is... uh, rather unprecedented and a little breathtaking. Now, the the reform group uh, is sort of analogous to the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which have been around since the days of Jimmy Hoffa, the original Jimmy Hoffa in in, in the 1960s and 70s. This group is is new. I mean, they've only had sort of their own experience with uh, uh, levels of union corruption in the last uh, four or five years. So they're, they're, they're new at this game, but I think we can expect, uh, I, I would expect they will take the presidency as well. And we can expect a leadership uh, that will certainly continue to grow on college campuses and that will be certainly endeavor to be more militant uh, on the job and seeking contracts, trying to do things that the old administration uh, said it was trying to do, but did not succeed at, like eliminating two-tier contracts in which newer hires get fewer benefits and and lower wages. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see where they go. But there's no question that the UAW uh, is, is going to go through really kind of an almost unprecedented change and that the students are in its future. I should add that the one person who did win outright in the uh, uh, first round of the election was the leader of the New England region who had who was the leader of the Harvard Grad Student Union. So, I mean, the fact is the UAW under Ruther had some amazing real intellectuals uh, on staff and in leadership, probably more than at any union in this country's history ever. And, you know, maybe getting back to, the, uh, to that again, but in different ways. But in Ruther's day, you got a lot of dedicated college students who so were enamored of the UAW, they just went to work in auto factories so they could be, you know, do things in the UAW. This time you're getting actually, you know, the uh, uh, the students in college, the UAW has come to them. They don't have to go to auto factories, <laughs> but they're, they, they will be a part of the new leadership. And finally, it's time for a little Trump talk. Trump's family business was convicted Tuesday of criminal tax fraud. That was the same day that his hand-picked candidate lost a winnable race for them in the Georgia Senate runoff. Same time, the House January 6th committee has decided to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department, perhaps of Trump. And then there was his call to terminate the Constitution so that he could uh, become a president. Uh, that's once again backed Republicans into a embarrassing space. CNN says, quote, this kind of week could break Donald Trump, close quote. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, <laughs> the answer is yes, but at what point? Uh, I think it would break him if he is, in fact, the Republican nominee for president in 2024. I don't see how he can win, uh, given the kind of stuff. Uh, first of all, he lost before all the things you just enumerated. <laughs> That's a good point. He lost by 7 million votes before that. Uh, <laughs> this would, I'm sure, swell that margin. But it's not a given that he can't win the Republican nomination because uh, when he won it in 2016, there were 16 candidates. And right now, uh, I anticipate there will be, you know, an equivalent number of Republican candidates. Uh, this is a party filled with ambitious people. Uh, there is uh, a void as to who the next uh, Republican presidential nominee will be. And you don't have to get that high a percentage of the vote 
if you have everyone else dividing up the non-Trump vote. And so he may have had a really bad week, but I'm not sure the consequences for that week necessarily mean he's not going to get the Republican nomination. Then, of course, it's also possible that he doesn't get the Republican nomination. And since his own commitment is really just to himself, he might want to run as an independent. Uh, Either way, none of that augurs very well for the Republican Party. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. This is great. Good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The biggest strike in the country this year, and the biggest strike in the history of higher education, is underway right now at the University of California, where 48,000 teaching assistants, research assistants, tutors, postdocs, and researchers are in the fourth week of picketing all 10 campuses, demanding big pay increases to help cover the higher cost of living, especially the cost of housing in California. For comment, we turn to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including the definitive history of the United Auto Workers, titled Walter Ruther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, the latest news is that last week the university offered one group of strikers, the postdoc researchers, a $12,000 raise in the coming year. That's 20%. And this covers 12% of the 48,000 striking workers. The members of that UAW branch are voting right now this week. Most workers in America would love a 20% wage boost in the coming year. So this looks like a tremendous victory for the union. What do you think? It's a modest increase, in part because there's been a stagnation in uh, wages uh, for postdocs and also academic researchers uh, over many years. Uh, So they're sort of making up for that. And of course, also the the predicate for this strike has been this enormous increase in um, housing inflation in California and coastal California over the last few years, not to mention the inflationary surge of the last uh, 18 months, really. One, One interesting aspect of this uh, UC offered to the postdocs who are mainly, you know, working labs and things of that sort, and, and also some of the academic researchers, is that it's gotten the professoriate, the tenured professors, quite upset, not because they don't they don't want their, their postdocs to have a wage increase, but because they're going to have to pay for it. In other words, the money for this comes from the grants that the principal investigators win from the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of health, etc. So UC is not actually paying for this wage increase. So the there was a long letter sent by all the science faculty saying, wait, what are you doing here? You know, you're basically having putting it on us. Yes, we want them to get more money. But you know, you have to contribute some or at the very least uh, lobby Congress or something to, uh, to get the uh, stipends increased from the from the federal uh, science agencies. Now, some of our friends, including the nation's strikes correspondent, Jane McAlevey, who has a piece at the magazine right now, but was not able to join us today, says that this is a a disaster for the union as a and the strike as a whole, because it splits the striking workers into two groups, the ones who are getting the really big offer and then everybody else. What do you think about that? Well, that is unquestionably uh, the University of California's strategy or the negotiators for the University of California. Yes, they are clearly trying to do that. They've, they've given t- in two ways they, they've, they've made this. On the one hand, yes, they've given a, clearly a better offer to the postdocs and these uh, and these academic researchers, again, paid for by the feds. And, and really, they, they've pretty much stonewalled uh, and given a very inadequate offer to the to what was the heart of the strike. That is the teaching assistants, the grad students, the tutors, et cetera, really the majority of those on strike and really the, the military 
militant heart of the strike, and 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 they're far more inadequate. And in addition to that, by the way, it's just very obvious they they call for a a five year I think it's a five year contract for the postdocs and the people working labs, and a and a three year contract for the teaching assistants. Well, that's just so that they won't be they won't coordinate. You know, they'll be they'll be divided. So it's pretty it's that's pretty obvious. The postdocs are voting this week. What do you think they should do? Well, I think they should actually reject the contract. The same is true of the academic researchers, partly because it's only a modest uh, improvement for them. And if they, and it would also materially help the teaching assistants, uh, the grad student teaching assistants, who really are up against it. And uh, and I think a kind of united front would be something that the that UC and its negotiators would would take would recognize. You know, this is this is something they have to deal with. So I, I would recommend that they reject it. Now, I assume that the TAs who are, as you say, crucial to this strike, because they're the ones who grade the final exams, and it is now week 10 and going to be week 11 of the fall quarter, and that means it's final exam time. The university has made them what the university calls a final offer. You, You said this was not a very good offer. Currently, I saw that teaching assistants at the University of California have a baseline salary of $23,200. That's really poverty wages, isn't it? Right, it is, of course, and, and, it, and it was exacerbated by this surge in housing costs. Okay, I look pretty carefully. I don't want to get into all the weeds about it, but I look pretty carefully at the at the UC offer to the teaching assistants. And over the course of a three-year period, there would be a nominal increase in wages. UC calculates at twenty five percent, but really that begins in doesn't begin now. It, be, it began in two thousand twenty one, and that doesn't, of course, take into effect if, in, uh, inflation. And if you if you calculate inflation in there, and one of the big demands of the teaching assistants was COLA cost of living adjustments, so that they wouldn't that wouldn't be eroded. If you take that, and I, th- I think the the real increase uh, is about eight or nine percent over four years. Well, I think from UC's point of view, you know, they view this, this is sort of just, okay, another routine two or 3% a year. But the, the student teaching assistants, the grad students and the postdocs, they want what they call a transformative contract, one that will sort of end this, this era of, of near poverty, of austerity, of precarity, insecurity. And, and UC is clearly not about to do that. Well, The university emphasizes that its offer, which I understand is around $28,000 in, what, two years from now, up from $23,000. To get to 28, yeah, yeah. To get to 28. They say that 28, you have to remember, they say, this is for half-time work because grad students are required to study and only allowed to work for 20 hours. So if 28,000 is for half-time, they say that's 56,000 equivalent for full-time and that's a pretty good salary these days. Are they right about that? Well, that's all. That's all so theoretical. <laughs> in fact, it's you can't actually put a grad student on more than twenty hours a week. They will call you on that. You can't do that. I've tried to do that. You can't do that. <laughs> Maybe you have- it's in the union contract. It's that's the right. workload. <laughs> the workload provision. That's right. So the rent is not half. If the rent were cut in half, that'd be fine. Or you know, whatever the or the hot dog you buy was cut in half. But the, but the the expenses are full time, and the the salary is half time. So now the university replies that they don't control the cost of housing in California. Right. They, of course they don't. But, um, well, there, there are obviously things that, that in long long term that could be done. Obviously, more housing for, for students. They do provide housing for faculty and, and sometimes that subsidize um, mortgage rates, et cetera. Um, that's a long-term uh, kind of solution. And, but and there the, is some grad student housing. There's married yes, grad there, student housing at UCLA, at Irvine. I think it's in right, Of course there is. Uh, not enough of it. But 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 here's the thing. that, that For lots of all sorts of reasons, there's inflation. I mean, the, the price of gasoline, the university doesn't control the, the price of, uh, of food, uh, which has gone up, etc. But this is just the reality of inflation. When you have inflation, uh, the real wages of people is eroded. And when you're sort of toward the toward the bottom, that creates real pain. And so uh, th- this is what, what unions have been doing for the last century. <laughs> you know, they've, they've said we need a wage increases to keep up with inflation. 
want to go back to this issue of the teaching assistants grading final exams because sure. this is really the heart of the right. of the strike and it's the heart of the problem the university now faces if the strike isn't settled in the next couple of weeks students will not get most of their final exams graded so what happens then is they may get an incomplete for their fall quarter work even though they finished their work. Uh, one of the issues here is how much support do the striking TAs have among students and among the faculty who the university is now pressuring to do the grading? That's right. They are. I mean, there's no, no doubt that this is disruptive and 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 in, and inconvenient and, and worse, uh, and creating problems for all sorts of people, faculty and undergraduates as well. That's true of, of any kind of any kind of service service sector strike. Everything from 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 the hospital to the DMV. But what's remarkable about this strike, and I think, is that there's tremendous support for this the certainly the demands of the strike, and I think the strike itself. Well, among Every undergraduate leader in the in the system has endorsed what the what the grad students and other others want. The faculty has uh, nine hundred faculty issued a, a statement, you know, calling on the the UC and the regions to meet the demands of the strike. So I think that in general there is enormous support for this. There's, there's you know, unlike some like teacher strikes we had, you know, a couple decades ago where you'd get a group of angry parents and you know demand. Yeah, none of that's happened. None of that's happened. And I and I I think uh, there's general support. And of course, many faculty people have been out on the, some of the picket lines. Now, the faculty are teaching their classes right now. They they are they are not on strike. But when you have a, a class of any size and you had some teaching assistance, it's going to mean that the grades will not be in there that, you know, when the, when the time comes. Some chancellors, I, I understand, I, I think at Irvine, you uh, postponed the grades coming in until January. I, I found out that here at UC Santa Barbara, there was like a week delay, which wasn't very much. But I I don't know if that's going to be general or not. That clearly, the, those cha the chancellors are trying to to avoid a kind of. I think they'd like to avoid a showdown. Now, the picket lines are at the university, the ten university campuses, yep. and as you say, the chancellors are struggling with what to do about this. But yep. Jane McAlevey reminds us the chancellors are not the ones negotiating with the union right. it's the university president and the what uh, has full-time union negotiators right. and the real power here is the regents of the university and jane mcalevy argued in the nation that it's time to put the pressure on the regents i wonder what you think about that well, I, I i agree i think that is true and not just the regents but also the legislature and the governor yeah. uh, and, there, and there are as we speak uh, there are actually sit-ins taking place uh, yeah the, in, in Sacramento and, and in, in the headquarters of the UC. And I think pickets have gone up to some regions' houses and things of that sort. In Los Angeles, union member, members did picket the offices of one of the regents. This is a guy named Regent Jay Shures, yeah. Beverly Hills. I, I looked him up. What kind of person gets appointed <laughs> by the Democrats as a regent? Regent Jay Shores is a Hollywood Uber agent yeah. who represents TV personalities, including Chuck Todd, Dr. Phil, and Jake Tapper. Yeah. He's also a philanthropist who fights cancer with the UCLA Comprehensive Cancer Center Foundation. And his office now is being picketed every day in Beverly Hills. Uh, the striking uh, UC employees say, quote, UC Regent Jay Shures runs a talent, talent agency, will be here until he does something about the lack of talent at the University of California <laughs> negotiating table. So this is the kind of spirit that we like to see. That's that's right. I mean, the, the it's one of the features of the UC system for those your listeners outside California, the chancellors are, are really don't have all that much power in, in many ways. The larger issue is this, that we've had four decades or more of austerity, really, when it comes to the university. So, for example, in the 1960s, when Clark Kerr famously, you know, put forth his master plan for the, the sort of the architecture of the entire university, the state of California, the legislature appropriated about 50% of the operating funds of the university. Today, it's somewhat more than 10%. So that's been reduced enormously. And so it's the, the regents and then them putting pressure on the governor and the and the uh, legislature 
to reverse this, this austerity uh, trend line, which has gone on for decade after decade. And I think this strike is actually an impulse toward that because, you know, if this is what's going to happen at a great university all the time, well, then we have to do something about it. And I think that will propel the, the legislature and the governor uh, and the powers that be to, to increase funding. And of course, California is a rich state. The GDP of California is larger than all nations except four or five. That's cor- that's correct. As of June of 22, uh, there was something $97 billion surplus. Now that will decline, especially if we have a recession. But nevertheless, all this wealth needs to be needs to be a progressive taxation and uh, and and you know to fund uh, uh, you know an institution like UC, which is really at the heart of what the the California dream is all about. Nelson Lichtenstein is University of California labor historian and a union activist. Nelson, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you. And let me add, you can read more about the UC strike at thenation.com, where Jane McAlevey has a piece titled, Time to Turn Up the Pressure on the University of California Decision Makers. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. In the Georgia Senate runoff, incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock beat Herschel Walker by 100,000 votes, 1.8 million to 1.7 million. Her comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, you ask in the nation, can we finally talk about what a show these last few months have been? Yes, let's do that. First of all, why did we have to have this election twice? Why does Georgia have a runoff of the top two candidates? Because racism, John, Jim Crow, It was imposed in 1964 when Black people first started getting voting power. And so they created this bizarre rule that if you couldn't get above 50%, white or Black, Democrat or Republican, it is pretty fair, as they say, you were going to go to a runoff. But the thing was that runoffs are really tough for insurgent candidates. They take a lot of time. They confuse voters, like, why am I going to a runoff? What is a runoff? Uh, And so they figured that was a good way to really thwart Black Black voting power. And it was until 2021 when people figured out how to use it. And then we had this whole business about early voting on Saturday. What was that story? Well, you know, it depends who you talk to. Um, Basically, the story was that there was a holiday that was created that was called Robert E. Lee Day. And our, our, you know, our listeners know who that is. And you could not have, allegedly, you could not have a vote within a couple of days of that, of any holiday. Then People challenged it, not just because it was Robert E. Lee Day, but it it never said anything about runoffs. So it should have been fine to just have a runoff election within a couple of days of Robert E. Lee Day. So Reverend Warnock's people and all, you know, all the people went to a judge and, you know, for the first time in a long time, the judge found that they were right. And so people did get to go and vote on Robert E. Lee Day. I just think we should call it Robert E. Lee Day. I'm happy to do that. There's one, one missing part of this. Why is it that early voting benefits Democrats in Georgia? And that's why the Republicans would like to limit it. I think anything that gives working people, people of lower income, more time to get to the polls, they think benefits Democrats. But I think they're going to have to rethink that. And I think, you know, they've they've campaigned against 
early voting and they've campaigned against and they and they've shut down absentee voting. But their their voters want that, too. I mean, first of all, let's just be honest. Their voters are our demographic. They are older people and they would like to have more choices. So I think it's going to get more interesting over time. I'm not sure, but I do think that that is going to go away. Well, there certainly was a high turnout for early voting in person. Uh, we saw all those pictures of long lines at the very beginning of, of uh, early voting. The mainstream media said this shows the enthusiasm of the voters. Do you, uh, Is that the way you see it? No. You know what? My heart saw it that way. I loved it. You know, it's like, yes, they're out there. They're going to go vote. But no, it was because they cut back so far on absentee voting and and also absentee ballot drop offs, which were really incredible in 2020 and 2021. So, you know, it was definitely just people really struggling for the right to vote and shutting uh, voting places in black neighborhoods and moving voting places in black and neighborhoods. moving voting places. And I'd like to make one other note here. It used to be called absentee voting. Now let's call it voting by mail. Voting by mail in where I live in the state Thank of California you. is an ordinary thing. Every voter gets a ballot. If you want to vote by mail, go ahead. You don't need to apply for an absence with a reason, right. which is the difference between red states and blue states, basically. Right. And I, I just wonder if that's going to change. I mean, I hope it does. I have no evidence that it will. But it's just there are so many states that do it that, that you know, are, are at least purple states. But what they did with shutting down drop boxes was really evil. And that's why I am so thrilled that Senator Warnock won, but that he won by such a slim margin, that's on us. That's on yeah, our conscience. Yeah. Well, the um, the Republicans' biggest chance, and really the heart of their strategy, especially with Herschel Walker, was vote suppression, was the main weapon they had for winning. But in the end, it seems like the biggest factor in the race may have been that Herschel Walker himself was probably the worst candidate in the recent history of American politics. But what does it say that white Republicans in Georgia picked Herschel Walker, a black man, to be their Senate candidate? Does that represent racial progress in America? Um, no. Being a white lady, I'm just going to defer to a black lady. Adrian Shropshire of Black Pack was really kind of open about it, it, which, you know, people would say this off the record, but they wouldn't say it on the record. But she did. The Republican Party is attempting to impose their vision of what a black leader should be. It fit white conservatives stereotypes of black men and which is kind of creepy. If we ask how Warnock won for the fourth time, let us admit, in two years, basically, this was a turnout battle from the beginning. Turnout everywhere was very high, especially for a runoff. I, I read it ended up in the runoff about 90% of what the vote had been on election day in November, narrowly higher in blue counties. So let's talk about the Democratic turnout operation. This is the fruit of a decade of work by Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project to significantly expand the Georgia electorate. How did this work for Warnock in the runoff? Um, I think it worked very well for him. I talked to a lot of people. They, you know, there was like last minute money flooding the zone um, and really great organizations were getting the money that they had been begging for, to be honest, for a couple of years um, to do voter education, turnout, mobilization. Um for the runoff. But, you know, it, it's also, it's it's very sad because obviously Stacey Abrams lost. Uh, and there's also, you know, a little bit of tension about, you know, whether the really excellent groups got the funds they needed. 
And I will always be on the side of those groups. You know, John, I just think that they are the ones who are living in the community and they are, you know, talking to people at the grocery store and walking their dogs. And that is what creates lasting political value. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm in favor of this is what Stacey Abrams pioneered for the last 10 years in Georgia, face-to-face, door-to-door, front porch, in-person organizing for voter engagement over the long term. And that means spending money on paid staff for field operations rather than on the TV ads that most candidates think are crucial. Warnock, I read, spent $52 million on TV ads Of course, there's a lot of evidence that political ads on TV don't really change people's minds. But I wonder, when you have an opponent as bad as Herschel Walker, who's done such terrible things and said such ridiculous and embarrassing things, maybe in this case, it helped Warnock to spend 52 million on negative ads about uh, Herschel Walker instead of spending spending it on paid staff for field operations. I, I wonder what you think about whether this is a special case. I had not thought about that. His ads were great, but I'm sorry. If we want Georgia to be blue, we need to invest in those organizations that are on the ground and working with people day to day. And I don't think that God bless him. I'm so happy he won, but I don't think Senator Warnock did that. And I think that is going to be something that people argue about for the next few months. As I said, this all started with Stacey Abrams. Did she campaign in the runoff for Warnock? I don't believe she was asked to campaign. Mm. I don't know. I ha- I put the question out there. I did not get an answer. But she did not campaign. So that's all I can say. But I can't imagine if she was asked that she would not have done something. And, you know, at the end, he went to some event with Killer Mike. And, you know, I've had my issues with Killer Mike going back seven years, which sounds like. Let's just say Killer Mike, um, black rapper who campaigned with uh, Bernie Sanders from the very beginning. Yeah, and often had some misogynistic things to say campaigning with Bernie Sanders. Killer Mike was back this year in Georgia talking up Brian Kemp, the voter suppression governor who was running against Stacey Abrams and saying that Brian Kemp was more in touch with the Black community than Stacey Abrams. Oh, my gosh. Reverend Warnock went out with him on, you know, the last night of the campaign. And I I am getting completely dogged on social media for objecting to this, but I will never apologize. That was wrong. And I love Reverend Warnock. Let me ask you a question about Brian Kemp. Of course, he's kind of a hero for standing up to Trump in 2020 and not switching the votes in Georgia. But of course, his politics are horrible right wing, you know, fundamentalist uh, politics. I, I read he refused to to campaign with Herschel Walker in the November campaign, but he did campaign for him in the in the runoff. And yeah. now Herschel Walker has lost. So where does that leave a Brian Kemp as a figure in 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 national uh, Republican politics, do you think? He's probably going to run for president. I mean, you know, all these guys are going to run for president, unless even if Trump does. I do have to say, you know, I remember on November 9th, we had our lovely converse, nation conversation. And it yes, was like, who, who is the biggest loser? Definitely. Donald Trump. Again, it's Donald Trump. I mean, this is ridiculous that, you know, this last race, he could not marshal the money, the people, the ideology to get Herschel Walker across the finish line. Also, he's he's got had a lot of um, sudden legal issues, shockingly, in the last few days. I mean, I 
I think he's the biggest loser. And I think that means it is a free for all. And I think Brian Kemp runs. I do. You, as you have suggested, uh, Herschel Walker is now the fourth Trump backed Senate candidate to lose in a potentially winnable state this year. Let's not forget Blake Masters in Arizona, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. How can we forget Dr. Oz? (laughs) Let's never forget Dr. Oz. So in a way, Democrats were very lucky this time around that that Trump picked their, the, the, candidates they may not be so lucky in four years when the map is not as favorable uh, for for democrats but at least georgia now has two democratic senators who've been elected multiple times and that really makes georgia a key battleground state in in 2024 one of five or six states that's going to select the next president don't you think it really does because i had my issues with my beloved reverend, but both he and Senator John Ossoff, they have awesome field staff. They have awesome ground games. I mean, I don't think they did enough. I'm not going to say they didn't try hard enough. I don't think enough happened in November, but I think they have organizations that will potentially, not definitely, keep Georgia blue. On the other hand, I am going to be covering what happened to the major funders who funded the day-to-day, neighbor-to-neighbor, Latinx, Asian, Black, poor people, workers, the, the really amazing things that were on the ground in 2020 and 2021 and kind of got a little goosing for this runoff because that is what we need. And that's what we need across the country. We cannot rely on Chuck Schumer, God bless him, and you know, major donors giving to we on the left really need to be going out and connecting with our neighbors talking to them about what matters. And I think that that's what the Georgia, the new Georgia project that Stacey Abrams founded and other groups did that others are not doing. And if that doesn't continue, we have a problem. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. This was great. Thank you, John. Please have me back. it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. 